We come now to the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. We would be in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. If you think about this journey as we have been going through these petitions one by one, we've seen that there is a sort of a structural element to these petitions, that the first three uh, look upward to God, have to do with His glory, His name, His kingdom, His will. And these second set of three petitions have to do more with us, about our daily bread, about the forgiveness of our debts, about the leading of us into temptation and the, our delivering from evil. If you look at that second set of three, there's another sort of structural element in which you can think about them. If you think about give us this day our daily bread, it's talking about our, our needs. That God in his providence would provide for our needs, care for our needs. And when you think about your needs, oftentimes we can connect that with the present, right? There are needs that we need and, you know, sometimes they're urgent or vital and they, you can connect our needs with what? The today, the right now, the present. When you continue on and you look at the next petition, talking about the forgiveness of our debts or our sins, what are we talking about there? Well, these, we're, asking, we're talking about forgiveness of sins that what have been committed. This is a look sort of back into what has already transpired, a look into the past. And now as we come to the sixth petition, we see Jesus turning his attention from the past to the future and sort of addressing, when it comes to his followers, the vulnerability to sins beyond today and into tomorrow. And he does that by teaching his followers to ask, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in teaching his people to pray in this manner, Jesus showed that we are to ask the Father to spare us from temptations and the spiritual attacks that can lead us into new sin. Now, when you think about this, starting out, I think it's important for us to think about a couple things. One is that no one is above falling. No one is above somehow shelving their faith shelving those things that are important to them. No one is above yielding to temptation in its multiple, various forms. No one. From the pulpit to the pew. The second thing, though, is that we need to know how to pray for spiritual protection for ourselves. And that's what this sixth and final petition is all about. That proper prayer includes praying for spiritual protection. 
And there's two parts to this petition. The first is a negative, and the second is a positive. The first is a negative. Lead us not into temptation, and then what? Deliver us from the evil one. So let's look at these both for a moment. Let's begin with lead us not into temptation. What, what does that mean? I think on a first glance reading, it may be uh, difficult for us to gather. Let's start with what it does not mean. Although I think certainly some may feel as though it means this. It certainly cannot mean, although some have maybe thought this, that God is the prime mover behind all temptations. If you look into James chapter 1, verse 13, it makes it clear um, that when tempted, no one should say, what, God is tempting me, nor does he tempt anyone. So that's what it does not mean. On the other hand, so I, I think, I imagine that some Christians, right, have imagined that if Christians truly pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation, that they can somehow be exempt from all temptation. But the Bible is clear that temptation is an unavoidable part of the human existence. Even if you look back in Scripture and you look at the great saints of the faith, you look back into the lives of the apostles, they lived in a sort of a, a state, this state of continual temptation. And really the key into understanding what lead us not into temptation means is found in, in the understanding of that word translated here as temptation. It can have two meanings. It can mean sort of an enticement that has the goal of causing someone to sin. Or it can refer to a testing, a trial of the validity of one's faith. This particular word in the original language, it occurs 21 times in the New Testament. 20 of those times, of those appearances, it has the idea, that latter idea of what? Of a testing or a trial. So, lead us not in temptation. You can understand it as, do, as a prayer to say, do not allow us to come under the influence of temptation that will overpower us and cause us to sin. Lord, preserve me from temptation that will bring me under its influence and will cause me to fall. We, we cannot help but, what, be exposed to temptation, and we are not to pray that we will be spared tempting at all. Rather, we're to pray that we will be spared those temptations that we cannot withstand. And here, if you look at Scripture, there's a reality that temptation 
can be good for us. And the idea that it is a testing and a trial. Think about the life of Jesus for a moment. Temptation shaped, molded the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus himself. Think back into Matthew, where we've already come from, into Matthew chapter 4. What did we see there? How does Jesus' ministry begin? It begins with what? These epic temptations in the wilderness. Satan comes before him with these elaborate, intricate, spiritual attacks. And Jesus withstood it all. And with the temptation conquered, what does he do? He goes on to live his unmatched life. If you come after that to some three and a half or so years later and you come to Gethsemane, what do we see again? That he triumphed again over temptation, conquering this impulse to, to flee from the cross. And if you look in, in, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about this, this molding, this shaping effect of, of these and other sufferings on, on the life of Jesus. So if you look in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fascinating. Now think with me. If temptations helped to shape the life and the ministry of our perfect Lord Jesus Christ, how much more do they do so for us? There is a sense in which temptation is necessary for the development of our character, this character of the kingdom that we've talked about at length here in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is why the Scriptures, when it comes to testing and trial and temptation and suffering, always kind of urges the long view. That's a theme throughout Scripture. You can see it in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We read it earlier. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So the proper prayer regarding temptation is not that somehow we will be exempt from all temptation because for facing and overcoming it is necessary for the health of our souls. But the proper praying mindset 
does ask God to deliver us from the overpowering temptations. And it's a recognition, hear me this morning, it's a recognition that we are weak. That we can be prone to fold under severe testing. Think about our friend Peter that we see in the Gospels. You think about G, and when you think about Peter and his, and his great mistake, if you will, or his denial or what he did, what laid at the core of it? I think it was Peter's presumption about his own flesh. The confidence he had in his own flesh that led to this terrible failure. Think about it. Hours before he, he denies Jesus. Just hours before. What is he saying? What does he say? Basically, in effect, he says what? I don't know about these guys. I don't know about the rest of these other guys, but God, when you look at me, you're looking, you're looking at a real man. You know, all the rest of them, all these, they might forsake you, but what, me? I, I'll never forsake you. Then what? Hours later, where is he? Denying Christ with curses on his tongue. So we have to recognize that our presumptions about our flesh, it can, it can take many forms, but we need, to, we need to see the weakness of our flesh. There's a story recorded in the history of two men who were condemned to die uh, during the reign of Queen Mary in England in the 1500s. They were set to be executed, burned as, at the stake, essentially. That was the methodology of the time and place. You had two of them. One of them had made it known and boasted very loudly to his companions around him that when it came time to go to the stake, that he would be a man at the stake, that he was so grounded in the gospel that he knew he would never deny Christ, even saying that he longed for the morning that it was going to come. And then there was his companion with him there in the prison as they awaited. And this man was trembling. And though he was determined not to deny his master, he was afraid of the fire. He said in his life he had always been very sensitive to suffering. And he was, 
in this sort of great dread that when he began to burn, that the pain would cause him to deny the truth. So that man urged this other friend to pray for him. And he spent his time as he awaited, weeping over his weakness, crying out to God for strength. The other man sees this and kind of goes, come on, almost rebuking him for his weakness, for his unbelieving nature. And yet when they both come to the stake, the one who had been so bold at the mere sight of the fire, he recanted, while that poor trembling man whose prayer was, lead me not into temptation, stood firm, praising, magnifying God as he died that cruel death. I want you to hear me this morning. The proper prayer for this protection is soaked with the awareness, with a profound awareness of our weakness and that we can be prone to fall. That there is a, a danger in having a religious bravado that assumes that we are too strong to stumble or fall. Lead us not into temptation. But Jesus goes on to tell us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Now, I know that some uh, of your versions and translations will render this as deliver us from evil and not deliver us from the evil one. Uh, there's much scholarship that will say in looking at the original language that the, that the, that the closest rendering is the evil one. And we are talking about the enemy of the people of God in the devil. That proper prayer for spiritual protection understands the reality of evil and of the evil one. And yet saying that you um, actually have that conception or that, or that notion will not jive with this culture will not jive with many even corners of Christianity. And yet, C.S. Lewis famously has said, this understanding that, oh, you know, we don't need to worry about all that or to minimize the existence of evil and the evil one is one of the greatest tricks, if you will, that the forces of evil have ever pulled off. If you look at the words for, for the name of the enemy, we have the name Satan. Where does that come from? That's actually just the common Hebrew word for adversary or enemy. Then you have the word devil. It is, that is the common Greek word for slanderer. In that the evil one does not bring truth, but what? Lies. 
So the evil one is both, and it's important for us to realize, is a real adversary and our real slanderer. But there are all kinds of approaches to evil that don't quite get it right and that many will take. So the first sort of approach to evil is to say, well, take the head in the sand approach. You can pretend that evil doesn't really exist or that if it does, that, you know, you know it doesn't really matter. Yeah, people, people do some silly things sometimes, but let's just all work a little harder. Let's all try a little harder, and, you know, it'll, it'll work itself out. That's one way, head in the sand when it comes to evil. Another approach, which is actually the mirror image of that approach, is to wallow in evil and to have your vision overcome and overwhelmed by evil. See, once you realize that there is such a thing as radical evil, and there is, and once you realize that it, it is a power more powerful than you, then you either can do what? Become evil yourself or become paranoid in a sense where you allow evil to dominate you and dominate your vision. In either of those ways, you're, you're, you're giving in, you're caving, you're allowing evil to dominate you. There is a third approach that also doesn't quite get it right. And that is the approach of self-righteousness. This says, Lord, yeah, there's evil out there, and I... And I thank you that I'm not like those other people. We'll say, yes, there's evil out there, all right. But we are the righteous ones. We are the holy ones. And we're called to go to battle with it. But we battle with it in self-righteousness. What if all our battling in self-righteousness is a manifestation of evil itself. See, Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, and in the way that he's teaching his followers to pray, he adopts none of these approaches. And he doesn't want his followers to do that either. His way is to recognize the reality and power of evil and to confront it with the reality and power of the kingdom of God. Jesus' way is for his followers that they too recognize what evil is for what it is and that they learn to pray Deliver us from evil, not in our own strength, God, in you, in your strength. Deliver us from evil. 
So if you think about the Lord's Prayer, and you think about this last of the six petitions, if you were to kind of go through and be praying these, and then you sort of leave out this last one, de-emphasize it and say, well, you know, yeah, I get all the rest of them, but this last one you leave out, that's like that first wrong approach to evil, isn't it? That head-in-the-sand approach. Now, also, if you're praying this prayer and you come through and you focus on this last one as greater and more important than all the other ones, and that this last petition is the only significant part of the prayer, then that would be that wrong second approach, right? Where your vision is ultimately dominated by evil. Thirdly, if you come to that portion of the prayer and you see yourself as the answer to the prayer, that you are the one who through your virtue, the whole world is going to be rid of evil, and you and you alone and your strength, if you see yourself as the answer, what is that? Then that is that self-righteous approach to evil. Jesus has called us to something different. What do we pray? What do we pray? We should pray. Pray for protection for our families. Pray for the protection our church and the body of Christ. We should intercede for those that we know are under attack, who are in the grips of it, praying they would be delivered. I think we're, we're, fam I think we're familiar with the role of Satan as the tempter. I think when we think of him, we think of that. And that's certainly what he does. <coughs> Excuse me. But if, if you really think about it, if there's a trademark for the work that the devil does in the life of the Christian, it's not so much the work of temptation, but the work of accusation, the work of accusation. I want you to hear me this morning. The enemy will seek to do everything he can to paralyze believers with unresolved guilt. And in that sense, he is standing in direct opposition to the truth of God. Which we know has, of course, what, been his role from the very beginning. Beginning. Ever since Eden, Satan has been about what? Contradicting what God says. But we thank God. Why? God makes a simple but profound 
promise to Christians. You can see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, it's an amazing promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When a child of God confesses his sin, God forgives it. And it's hard to think of something more simple but profound. But it is as simple as that. But as soon, hear me this morning, as soon as God says that the believer is forgiven, who shows up? Satan shows up and says, oh, is that what God really said? Oh, no, you, no you're not. You know you're not. You are still guilty. And if a Christian were to listen to that and indulge that, they would become burdened, weighed down by the paralyzing load of guilt. And that guilt will rob a believer of any assurance they might have of, the, of their own salvation. Paul talks about this. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, and he approaches it, and he writes it, and it, it's almost as though he writes it triumphantly, right? He's, he's connecting in to the power and the presence of God when he says in Romans 8, 33 and 34, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Praise God. God has justified us on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. So when the enemy comes and does what he does, and that is what he does, and brings his accusations against, against us. What can we say? I sinned. But now, my guilt is covered, and my sin is washed away. Peter in 1 Peter 5.8 refers to Satan as the, this adversary. But we have an assurance in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 7, that if we resist the devil, that he will flee. And you must hear me this morning. Prayer, prayer is a key weapon of resistance. See, we have the promise that if we resist 
that he will flee. But then the question is, how do we resist? Prayer is a key weapon in our own resistance. I've often asked and thought of my own self, how would I measure up if God allowed me to be severely tested? I honestly don't know. And I don't want to have to find out. So I find myself, in, in, in regards to this prayer, to praying this prayer, Lord, Father, keep that hedge of protection around me. Don't put me in that place of, of the testing. Deliver me from the evil one who's, who's going around like a roaring lion, ready to devour whomever we, he will. God, protect me. And it's so important that this be part of the daily prayer of believers. And here it is. I said in the beginning, none of us is above succumbing to the trials and the temptations that come before us. Think about it. These assaults, these attacks, they come and they come and they come. We need to recognize. We need to ever be recognizing our own frailty, our own weakness, and lean upon the power of God. We have to understand that without it, we cannot stand. If you think back again to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus comes... to pray as the cross is looming. I think we can get a little glimmer into what the meaning of do not let us be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. We know that Jesus, he goes to pray, his followers are with him, and again and again, he says this same thing to his followers that are there. What does he say to them? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, think about this moment. This is the moment of moments, right? The, the, the story has come, it has been fast approaching for this time. And it seems kind of odd that in this moment, Jesus would tell his followers to, you know, hey, say your prayers in case you might commit some sort of personal sin right now. Because it doesn't quite fit with the moment. What is happening? Jesus has seen that the moment all his life has been pointed towards is now rushing towards him. 
And it's important to understand the meaning of that word temptation here as meaning that what? Testing, trial, like tribulation. And for Jesus, this great testing, this moment of horror and deep darkness, it is coming swiftly towards him. And in this own moment of agony, he has seemingly a fear that this moment of evil that is coming, this moment that it may engulf or suck in this, the, the close followers that are there with him. But what does Jesus know? about his mission and his calling. What does Jesus know about going into this test? How must he do it? He must go alone. Solo. Unaided. Into the fiery trial. But why? so that it would exhaust its force upon him and that you might go free. And so his followers have to pray, what? Let us not be brought into the testing, into the great trial, but what? Deliver us from evil as we come to close this morning. We have to come to grips with this this morning. That Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples in this moment. But when Jesus prayed it, what was the answer to him? No. Jesus takes it and puts it together with another part of the prayer, really, which is what? Thy will be done. And when Jesus takes these two parts of the prayer for him and puts them together in Gethsemane, what does he find? He finds that God's will has for him a unique mission that is only for him. that he would be the one that was led into the testing, that he would be the one that was not delivered from the evil. Why? He was delivered into the testing, into the cross, so you didn't have to, so that you could pray with confidence Lead me not into temptation. He was delivered into evil so that you could be delivered from evil, so that you could pray, deliver us from the evil one. 
We have to acknowledge that temptation, the trial, the testing, it's necessary for our spiritual growth. And we must pray that God will keep us from these temptations that would destroy us. We have to pray. We have to humbly pray. Lead us not into temptation. We must empty ourselves of any spiritual hubris, any spiritual pride. We must also pray, deliver us from the evil one. We acknowledge that victory over Satan can come only through God's power as we truly depend on him. Being willing and able to authentically pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, it is a key to our spiritual health. It's part of our Lord's ideal pattern for prayer. So the question that lies before us is, do we pray it? Is a prayer for deliverance from temptation and the power of evil part of our everyday prayer life? Are you willing to make it so? Church, let us make it so. Let us make it so. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.